Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I'll show you, and I'll make of you a great nation, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I'll curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered, and the people that they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I'll give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. I don't know how many of you watched Q&A uh, a week ago. How many did, did see Q&A week and out with, with Archbishop Peter Jensen there? Uh, it, it was really obvious, wasn't it, uh, and uh, Peter Jensen mentioned it, that there's a clash of worldviews happening in our culture at the moment, f- fairly significant. There's a great divide between... That's OK. ..between the Christian worldview and the worldview promoted by our cultural elites. A great divide. And, and look, it seems that God is doing, uh, doing something uh, in Australia and making it incle- increasingly clear who is a Christian and who's not. And I think that's great for our evangelism. Uh, people are uh, now uh, coming out and, and they're, they're not now just saying, look, I'm a Christian. Okay, um, the panel was a bit stacked and perhaps the audience was stacked as well as, as is want to be in those programs. But I still think it holds true that, that God is actually starting to separate uh, and, and, and that'll be great for our evangelism. We'll know who's a Christian and who's not. But when the cultural elites of our society say, as one particular panellist did, that Christianity is out of date and a relic of the past and it's all so primitive... Um, what they're really saying is that my culture is the very best culture there's ever been. And my time in history is the best time in history. And it's not, because 100 years from now, the things that the culture criticises Christianity for will be laughed at, will be irrelevant. In, in 410 AD, um, the, uh, Rome was sacked by the barbarians, if you know a little bit of your history, and the elites of the Roman culture at the time... Uh, uh, criticised Christianity, they blamed Christianity. And Augustine uh, wrote this book, The City of God, uh, to counter those attacks. And if you read it now, uh, you'll struggle a little bit with it because the, the issues that he addressed at that time are no longer relevant today. The people argued that Rome had fallen because Christianity had weakened it. And the two main reasons were, that were given were, firstly, Rome betrayed its gods when it turned to Christianity, and these gods were now punishing Rome. And secondly, Christians were taught to renounce the world, and this led to them not serving the state. That's why Rome fell. Well, those those reasons will be laughed at today. And in a hundred years from now, the criticisms of Christianity today 
will also be consigned to the dustbin of history. Read Augustine's Confession, if you read that particular book. And if you're a Christian, you'll say yes to that. When was that written? At the same time, hundreds, thousands of years ago. You say yes to that. You say, yes, this man is a brother of mine in Christ because it's exactly the same faith we believe today. Biblical Christianity will never go out of date. A hundred, two hundred, five hundred years from now, there will still be hundreds of millions of people who believe what we believe. The opinions of our cultural elites will be out of date faster than you know. But biblical truth, as the Bible tells us, will endure, as Jesus tells us, will endure. In fact, it won't simply endure, it'll actually prosper. Yes, there will be stiff opposition, but it will prosper. Why? Because it's actually founded on God's promises. And here in Genesis 12, we have the great promise of God. God's whole purpose and mission is summarized in these verses, these few verses. His promise to bless the nations through Christ, the seed of Abraham. And the rest of the Bible, in fact, the rest of history, the history of the world, is simply the unfolding of this great promise. And so today here in Australia in 2012, thousands of years later, you and I and the churches that we're part of are actually a testimony to that, aren't they? Our churches are a testimony to God's faithfulness to that particular promise. We wouldn't be here today if God hadn't made that promise to Abraham. We're the fulfilment of that promise. God has blessed the nations through Abraham's seed, Jesus Christ. And what we see here in Genesis in this story of the call of Abraham is that, is, at the very, is, is, that, is at the very heart of the gospel that we believe and we, we preach and we witness to. It's the mission of God through the gospel. So let's take a closer look. The first thing we see here is the kindness of God. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Abraham, the verse is actually very difficult to explain. It's, 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 not easy to, it's, not, it's not hard to understand, but it's actually very difficult to explain. Why should God speak to Abram? Why should God speak to anyone after Genesis 11? Why should God bless the nations after Genesis 11? Think about it. In Genesis 1 to 11, you have three major crises. You have the fall the original rebellion of the man and the woman in the garden against God's rule. And then you have the story of the flood. The violence and corruption across the world is so intense that God destroys it in a, in a, in a great flood. And then you have the tower where man in his arrogance says, we've got the knowledge, we've got the technology, we can do what we want, there won't be any, we can solve all our problems. And in each episode, God judges brings judgment on man. And by the end of chapter 11, we see a world that's been cursed, we see a world that's been destroyed, and we see a world that's been scattered. So, so why, after all that, would God have anything more to do with this world? Why should there be any more story after Genesis 11? Because here is a world that is defied and rejected and mocked God's kingship and repeatedly spurned and shunned his fellowship. Why would God say to Abraham, verse 2, I will make you a blessing. Verse 3, all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Why would the living God insist on blessing the world of, of Genesis 1 to 11? 
Well, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I can't explain it. It's the loving kindness of God, isn't it? It's grace. That God would come to Abraham and insist on blessing a world that rejected him is the wonder and mystery of God's grace. God so loved the world that he called Abraham. It's amazing grace. But there's another thing that's hard to understand here. Why does God choose this man, Abraham? We tend to think of Abraham as good old father Abraham. He's a sort of nice guy and if God had to pick somebody, well, surely it would be a man like that. Surely you could hardly help but like Abraham. But the Bible actually doesn't say that. In Joshua chapter 24, when God surveys the, uh, the history of Israel, uh, um, he says to the people through Joshua, Long ago your fathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the river and worshipped other gods. That's Abraham. He's an idolater. He's worshipping other gods. Why would God have anything to do with him? Why would he speak to him and call him? I don't know. I can't explain it. It's the loving kindness of God. It's the grace of God. And it's repeated over and over again, isn't it? Down through history. Moses, David, Paul, Augustine, Newton, Moody, every Christian that ever lived, <laughs> me and you. You know, there's not one righteous, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Grace is at the very heart of this promise. We are all saved by grace. Our lives, our ministry, and all of it flows from that fact. That's the first thing we see here in Genesis 12, the kindness, the extraordinary, inexplicable kindness of God. Second thing we see is the faith of Abraham. Verse 1 is God's call on Abram. The Lord, uh, have a look at it there. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. And then in verses 4 and 5, we have Abram's response. So Abram left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Now, we don't know how God communicated with Abraham, but in Acts, Stephen, the first martyr, when he was preaching the gospel, tells us that the glory of God appeared to, uh, to Abraham. Was that a sort of Damascus Road experience? Or was it simply that he became progressively aware of God dealing with him? We, we don't know. The, the text doesn't tell us. But the reality is that it happened. The God of the God of glory spoke to Abram. And Abraham becomes aware that he's being addressed from beyond his own thoughts. God spoke to him and told him to get up and go. And the point is this. Abraham actually believed God's word and went. And the question is this. The question comes to us out of that text. Do we trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust him enough to do what he says. That's the challenge of our, our faith lives. Do we trust him enough to do what he says? Do you believe God enough to, to leave off pleasing yourself and start living to please him? See, you can even be involved in ministry and still be living to please yourself. I know. It's a temptation that I've had to, 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 to you know, to 
my idol, if I have one, and one I've got to constantly fight, is success. I want it to have my ministry be successful. That's, that's an idol. And, and uh, it's a constant trap. But to believe God's word is, is more than just intellectual assent to the ideas. It actually requires action. It, it requires putting aside those idols. We put God's word to the test. And that's what Abraham did. That's what it means to be a Christian, to lo- stop living to please yourself and to start living to please God. See, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We're not there yet, are we? We're not there yet. God promises us a new world, and Jesus demonstrated that new world to us when he came in his ministry on this earth. He gave us a taste of it, but we're not there yet. And he's called us, actually, to labor for this new world with the gospel, in the gospel. And to be a Christian is to believe God's word and to live your life based on the promises in God's word. And it's not just a once-only event, is it? It's ongoing. It's a relationship that needs to be worked out every day in, in the little details of our lives. That's what happened to Abraham. The, the God of glory appeared to this man from, who came from nowhere and spoke to him and Abraham believed that promise and acted on that promise. And wherever he pitched his tent, he built an altar. That's how he kept the relationship alive. It's a faith that rests on God's kindness. It's a faith that's rooted in God's word to Abraham. It's a faith that brought him into a relationship with God. It's a faith that resulted in a dramatic change of lifestyle. And notice how costly God's call was. It's highlighted in everything that Abraham had to separate himself from, his land, uh, his relatives, his father's house, everything that was familiar to him, everything that he'd grown to love. And it's the same for the Christian today. See, the potential cost is exactly the same, isn't it? Because Jesus said in Matthew 10, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The potential cost is exactly the same. Not that it always comes to that, but it could do. And there will always be some cost because we're all idolaters, as I said. The point is when Jesus Christ takes the place of supreme affection in your life, there will be things that you have to give up, things that you'll have to stop pursuing. We live in a culture when... Uh, which is really great on promises but really fuzzy on cost. And our politicians, you know, uh, they're marvellous at that, aren't they? And the church can sometimes fall into that same approach in order to win people. And the great danger of living in our time is that the desire for material wealth and comfort can easily push us towards promoting a Christianity that makes great promises at minimal cost. And all you need to do to become a Christian is to give intellectual assent to Jesus. We don't believe that, but the culture pushes us in that direction. But the gospel demands, and in fact the gospel enables you to turn from sin. The gospel demands and the gospel enables you to take up your cross. The gospel demands and the gospel enables you to die to yourself and to follow Jesus. 
and that will be costly, as the old hymn puts it so well. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my life, my soul, my all. That's the cost, and it'll be different for different people. For Abraham, leaving everything familiar. For Peter Jensen, ridicule and, and, and you know, sort of rejection on, on Q&A in a public forum. We might wonder, isn't God a little bit cruel to put us under that sort of stress and duress to demand such a cost from, from Abraham? John Calvin rightly comments, the reason God faces us with this kind of cost is not because he takes cool, cruel pleasure in testing his people, but rather what he is doing is testing our affections so that there are no undiscovered lurking places in our hearts and lives, not under the, his lordship. See, if we're going to follow God faithfully, we should think carefully, shouldn't we, about the difficulties and the dangers and the inconveniences involved so that we're not living in some sort of fool's paradise of trying to serve two masters and so on. It's actually making our calling and election sure, isn't it? The third thing this passage teaches us is, is the impossibility of it all. When, when, when uh, uh, the Lord said to Abraham, I will make you a, a great nation, the problem with that is that it actually didn't look like it at all, did it? How would Abram become a great nation? In chapter 11, verse 30, when we're first introduced to the family, we read that Sarah was, uh, was barren and had no children. And here when, uh, when God calls Abraham, he's already 75 years old. So it flies in the face of all the facts of life. And, and you know, this promise is not the power of positive thinking, just you know, wish hard enough and anything is possible. No, but if God promises, it's sure to happen. But the point is this, it never looks a sure thing. And in fact, to us, God's promises often look impossible, frequently look, look impossible. Someone once put it, God has a way of prefacing his greatest works with extreme difficulties. Abraham had almost nothing to work with. He had no children. He was 75 years old. Sarah was barren. You'd more likely to see them in a nursing home than in a maternity ward. Yet God says, I will make you into a great nation. That's even worse than that, actually. Look at verse 7. After Abraham comes into the land of Canaan, God appears to him and said to, the, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, that's not just some, you know, and then we see in the sentence before that, it says, now the Canaanites were in the land. That, that's not some padding there. That's some interesting information. It's actually making the point. It's actually stressing the impossibility of it all. Abraham had no children. He's got no control over any of this land. And it's in the hands of God's enemies, in fact, the Canaanites. And yet God says to your offspring, I will give this land. And the writer is telling us that if this comes about, this, if this actually happens, it'll have to be God's doing. Because there are no human resources available to bring this about. And although the details are different, the same is true for God's people today, for us today. Australia is, as a culture is pretty hardened to Christianity. It seems to be hardening. It's tough ground to work in. But that actually should excite us, shouldn't it? should excite us. It's an impossible situation. And that's often when God does his wonderful work. Could it be that God is preparing this country for a great outpouring of his spirit? I hope so. Pray so. And personally, 
at a personal level, that should encourage us too, shouldn't it? When things look difficult and our, our ministries uh, look, feel fragile and weak, there's every possibility that God is preparing to do what only he can do. That truth kept me going many times in the church planting work in southern Tasmania. I, I totally felt out of my league in that work. It always looked so fragile to me. I felt fragile. The work was being opposed by the congregation that was actually doing the work, some quarters of it anyway. And it's the same with the work that I do now in renewing this, this church, this older church. But we have a Lord who is mighty and who has often taken his people through impossible situations into his wonderful promises. And he did it for Abraham. He still works like that today. Why does God do it that way? Well, I can think of three reasons. There are probably many more. So our ministries would rely on his power and not on our strategies and cleverness and effort so that we would learn to love him more than we love our ministries and so that the glory would go to him. So we're saved by grace, the kindness of God, through faith, a faith that believes and acts on God's word, not by works because it's impossible, but we're saved to works prepared for those in advance for us to do. So finally we see here that Abraham lives a different life. We see that in verses 6 to 9. It says there, Abraham travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. Shechem's actually in the middle of Palestine and the great tree of Moray was a pagan shrine and people would visit that place and gather to hear the oracles of their soothsayers who heard it in the rustling of the leaves, I'm told, in the commentaries. That's where Abraham came to. And what did he do? Well, the Lord appeared to him and promised the offspring the land. And then it says in verse 7, so he built an altar there to the Lord. And see, Abraham wasn't going to blend in to the culture and religion of the place, of the people around him. That's what typically happened when people moved in those days from one country to another. They adopted the culture of the go- and the gods of that particular country. Well, Abraham didn't do that. He'd come into a different life. And notice it becomes his regular habit. Verse 8, from there he went towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. And with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Wherever he went, Abraham pitched his tent and built an altar. Those are the two symbols of his life. And that's not a bad description, is it? A summary of the Christian life. The tent is a symbol of life means that you don't lay foundations. You sit loose. You hold everything loosely. You have the same attitude of Abraham that he describes of himself in chapter 23, verse 4. I'm an alien and stranger among you. And look, the New Testament tells us, Peter tells that in his letters, the attitude of James in chapter 4, verse 15. What we say is if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. The symbol of my life is a tent as a Christian, not laying a foundation. I'm a pilgrim just passing through. And it applies to the church as well. The church has been given a mission that requires actually mobility. In the late 1940s, the US government started work on an $80 million troop, $80 million troop carrier for the Navy. It was designed to carry 15,000 troops during times of war. It was completed ready for service in 1962. The fastest, most reliable troop carrier ever built. The only catch was 
the ship never carried troops. The ship was put on standby once during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. But instead, a little while later, she was refitted to be a luxury liner for presidents and heads of state and celebrities. Refitted, she housed just 2,000 people, had four dining rooms, a heated pool, 19 elevators, 600 state rooms. And the ship became a means for the wealthy patrons to enjoy a relaxed cruise across the Atlantic. Well, the church is meant to be like that battleship, fitted and ready for battle, ready to move at a moment's notice, mobilising people to accomplish God's mission. I'm excited about organisations like Vision 100 and Geneva Push nationally because they actually encourage this mobilisation of the church and you guys are part of that and that's really, really exciting. This is not our home. We're pilgrims passing through, aren't we? We live in tents and it's exciting and radical and it's, it's a happiest way to live because we're serving the king. The second thing that Abraham did was build an altar and call on the name of the Lord. That, that was actually the essential, central feature of Abraham's life. That's what defined him. He was a worshipper of God, the maker of heaven and earth. He did this openly and publicly in the midst of a pagan culture. Abraham's entourage was quite large. So this would have been a fairly, a very public event and the locals would have known that it was happening. He worshipped the living God. That was Abraham's calling. And that's ours as well. More important than anything we do for God in and through the church plants is that we actually worship him, that we love him above all else with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. That's, that's the challenge of our, our lives, isn't it? Everything actually flows from that. All our service and ministry and relationships flow from our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that show in your life? Does that show in your ministry? Is that the very heart of your life? You can be parted from many things. You can be parted from all things, but not from this one thing, your relationship with Jesus Christ. I love being married because it unites me to Ingrid, my wife. In the same way, I love the gospel because it unites me to my saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Abraham experienced, a relationship with the living God. And in the context of that relationship, armed with its great promises of God, he became a blessing to the nations. And the same is true for, you know, we can go through history and, and, and think about Hudson Taylor, whom God called to bring the gospel to China, a work he persevered in for 50 years, or Amy Carmichael, who was called to take the gospel to, to people in India. She built a founded a, a Donahue Fellowship, a refuge for young girls, and was there for 53 years without furlough. And Jonathan Livingston in Africa and John Payton's work in the New Hebrides and Peter Jensen's work as Archbishop of Sydney and your church planting work, wherever you are. Adonira Judson was a missionary in Burma in the 19th century. And at just 25 years old, he and his young wife became the first missionaries to the people in Burma. He planted the first church in Burma. He translated the whole Bible into Burmese. You know, this man suffered incredibly for his faith. He actually lost two wives and a number of his children, and he was often severely ill himself. He was opposed by the Burmese king and local governors. He was often imprisoned and tortured. 
And at one point in prison, a fellow prisoner said to him with a sneer on his face, well, what about the prospect of reaching people for Christ then? To which Judson replied, they're as bright as the promises of God. That's just as true today. They're as bright as the promises of God, our prospects of reaching Australia today. I'll leave you with that. Can I pray with you? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the the truth that continually encourages us. And Lord, we pray that we won't be discouraged by the culture around us, but see it as a, a fantastic opportunity to be your witnesses and that your promises will mean that the nations will be blessed, that Australia can be reached and that people, people can hear and will hear the gospel. Help us, give us courage, Lord, uh, to continue to live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.